Uh, this morning, I want to speak to those of you, which may be all of you, probably all of us, if we're honest, who struggle with faith. Specifically, faith in the central tenet of Christianity, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now some of us are in a place where we're like, I'm not sure if I believe it. Others of us, we believe it, but if we're honest, sometimes that faith, that belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not as strong as maybe it once was, or is not as strong as you wish it were. And so what do you do to strengthen that faith? If you feel like you're struggling with whether you even have faith, you might be wondering, where do I where do I fortify that faith? Where do I establish that faith? Um, maybe it's an apologetics. Maybe what you need is uh, a few YouTube channels, a few resources, articles, books, where people describe to you that the best argument for what happened to Jesus' body is a resurrection, that none of the other arguments hold any water. And I think there's a lot to commend there. You might say, look, you might even know somebody. Maybe it's you that said, look, uh, when I read the Bible, sometimes people were visited by an angel. And why can't I just have that? Just, just a shock and awe into faith, you know, just a huge angel that scares me half to death, but not all the way to death, but just enough to implant some faith. Why can't I have that? Or why can't I just see Jesus for myself? Touch him. Touch those scars. Thomas got to do it. Um, and that kind of seemed to get him where he needed to be. Why can't I do it? We have to do it, not seeing the tomb, being 2,000 years removed from any of the uh, original eyewitnesses, etc., etc. So what do we need to strengthen our faith? And I think Luke 24 tells us, right? And so we can be honest with ourselves and go, okay, sometimes my faith is weak. Sometimes my faith struggles a little bit, and I wonder, it ebbs. We need to fuel it. How do we feel it? Okay, so that's what Luke 24 is about. It's a jump start or a reinvigorating for your faith if you're feeling like it's uh, thin sometimes. What we see right in the first scene, there are three scenes that we're going to cover today. Three scenes here. And the first scene is when the ladies of the disciples discover the empty tomb. Okay, and this is verses 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. We find out later who these, they are, but these are the ladies. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. There's one of the things I mentioned in the intro, right? Wouldn't you wish that you just were, had the angelic visitation? Well, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, 
and they did not believe them. So you see, this is about faith. They did not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Okay, so right here, the resurrection just happened. The first people to discover that resurrection are the ladies that went in to see it for themselves. They discover it first, and presumably they believe it because the text tells us in verse 11, they went to tell the apostles and the apostles didn't believe them. So the the ladies aren't telling something that they don't believe. They're saying something to the apostles that they now believe, but they're trying to get the apostles to believe it too, right? So the, the ladies have arrived. They have faith. They believe it. What got them there? Well, look, notice what it took to get the ladies there. It took three things. And for this sermon to work, you need to try to remember these three, okay? The first thing they saw was the physical evidence in verses 2 to 3, right? They go to the tomb. They see it for themselves. They're like, what? Where's the body? It's gone, okay? So they, they see the physical evidence for themselves. So the first thing they got was physical evidence, The second thing they got was the angelic visitation. Two men in dazzling white. Luke doesn't, he lets you connect the dots yourselves, but he's like, wink, wink, not two normal dudes. Okay? And so in verses four to five, they get the angelic visitation. Like, why are you looking for someone who's alive in a place where people are kept that are dead? He's not dead. Then he gives them the third thing. The third thing is remember what Jesus told you. Jesus told you that he would be crucified and on the third day rise so the angelic visitation and then they give them a the angels give them a reminder about what jesus taught them all along which they conveniently forgot any of you as parents you feel like you told your kids 15 times and then they i forgot how's that possible i told you 15 times take it easy on the kid because a you were a kid once and b as disciples this is what we're like right They were told many times that just didn't click for them. The things they wanted clicked. Oh, we're going to take over? Oh, a kingdom? That sounds great. Who's going to be first in the kingdom? Who's going to sit next to your throne? Who's going to be the guy? Did you hear I'm going to die? Yeah, yeah, uh, what's, what's to eat? Okay, so that wasn't clicking for them, but they were told. So three things, physical evidence, angelic, spiritual, obvious heavenly visitation, and then third, they were reminded about what Jesus told them. So if we stop there, we go, okay, so that, those are the three things we need. If you want to fortify your faith, you need those three things. You need physical evidence. You need some spiritual experience, an angel. Can we at least get a dream? Something. And then thirdly, what Jesus said. After that, after they believed, then they told the apostles what they now believe. And what we need to notice, it's obvious in this passage, I think, in this chapter, is that we're never going to go tell other people about our faith if we don't have faith. It's faith and then you tell. And that's a pattern that we see in this chapter. All right, so their faith is fortified, then they tell the men. The men are not sure whether, whether to believe it or not. Now, some will say, if I had A, B, and C, then for sure I would have a strong faith. Maybe you've heard that. I'll believe, I'll start coming to church and I'll follow your Christ if you can show me the physical evidence, if an angel breaks through the sky and just tells me himself, I see it for myself, and 
I can make sense of what Jesus said, but the emphasis tends to lie on A and B. But that's not what Jesus expects. And what I want you to see as we move forward into the next episode with these two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, is that Jesus purposely keeps them from A and B so that they would arrive at faith just on C. So for review, physical evidence, no. Angelic visitation, no. Just what did Jesus say? Yes. Jesus purposely keeps them from A and B so that they only can have faith by C, and he expects it and rebukes them for not having faith just with C. You with me? Right? Jesus doesn't want them to have the physical evidence in the light bulb to click, and he doesn't want them to even see himself and go, oh, Jesus is alive? That would do it. Forget an angel. If I see Jesus himself in person in the flesh, of course he rose again, and I would believe in the resurrection. Jesus doesn't want that to be the reason either. He wants their faith to be fueled. He doesn't want it to be fueled by evidence or personal visitation, even of Jesus the Christ himself. He wants it to be category C, which is what he had said before. Let's check that out in uh, the next section of verses as we read about these two disciples on a seven-day journey to Emmaus, a village called Emmaus, and Jesus interrupts their conversation to bolster their faith in a surprising way. Verse 13. That very day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, the resurrection, the, the witnesses, the supposed angelic visitation, all that stuff. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So Jesus isn't lying, he's just going along with the fact that they don't recognize him. He's just not revealing himself yet because he's trying to get them somewhere. He wants to bolster their faith in the right way. So he says, what things? So the disciples said to Jesus, verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty, a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that uh, they had even seen a vision of angels. There's the vision piece who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I want you to understand is that if you ever feel like you're, you know, 
going about your life as a disciple, journeying like these two guys were, and you feel a little hopeless, and you feel like your hopes are dashed, and you feel like your faith is low, that's a place where sometimes you're going to be. And if you are a minister, a growth group leader, a parent discipling your kids, and you ever hear like, ah, I feel like my faith is weak, you don't rebuke them for having a flimsy faith. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for having a, a flimsy faith. He rebukes them for trying to bolster that faith in the wrong places. There's a difference. So Jesus isn't saying, you lack faith and you need help? You're an idiot. No. What Jesus is saying is, you had see. All the things I told you were true are in Scripture. And just by investigating the scriptures, you should have what you need to bolster your faith. That's the problem. Now, the ladies had the experience at the tomb. These guys didn't have the experience at the tomb. It's secondhand information. Okay? So they don't have category A. And they have Jesus himself appearing, but he keeps it from them so that they don't have category B. No visitation. Jesus wants them to get it just from C, which is scripture. You guys should be getting it from Scripture. That's where you should be getting your faith fortified. So when your children or the person you're discipling or your friend, your best friend, your spouse is struggling with faith, you don't rebuke them for struggling with faith. You tell them where to get fuel for their faith, and it's not by an apologetics course. Don't get me wrong. I have no problem with apologetics. Apologetics is a great tool to get a conversation going, but apologetics is not how someone becomes saved. And apologetics is not how someone's faith is fortified unless all it's doing is showing you once again that what Scripture said is true. Jesus wants them to put their trust in what the Scriptures say, and if they had been doing that, they would have seen that this had to happen before it even happened. That's amazing. So these are, these are disciples. These aren't lost people. These aren't Pharisees. These aren't... Roman soldiers in verse 13 it says two of them if you go back to verse 9 all the rest of the disciples so it's not apostles it's also the disciples it's your regular believers and the topic is the same verse 13 is that same very day as the episode with the ladies that same day that they reported all that stuff and then it says in verse uh, 14 about all these things that had happened so it's still the topic of the resurrection of Christ how do we believe it with a faith that is strong and vibrant instead of these guys whose hopes are dashed. And look at all the facts they believe about Jesus. He was mighty. He was a prophet. He did A, B, and C, all these things that were very powerful. He was very impressive. Uh, he was killed. He was crucified. They believe all that stuff. The feeding of the 5,000, flipping the tables in the temple, how he taught with authority. No one has ever taught like him before. They believe all that stuff. Maybe they heard stories and even believe it, that he walked on water, calmed storms, healed blind eyes, and, and, and unstopped deaf ears. They believe all that mighty stuff. And where their belief stops is the resurrection. They're like, ah, we thought he was the guy, but apparently not because he's dead. And this is where Jesus wants to get them. All these facts... And then he's not the one to redeem Israel, they think. They want redemption. They want to be rescued out of their hopeless life. They want to be rescued out of their darkness. They know a redeemer has to come in order to do it. That's the hope that Job clung to. Remember when Job 
His family was taken from him. His kids were taken from him. His health was taken from him. His friends, debatable (laughs) how helpful they were. And even Job said, I know my redeemer lives. There's something about hope in a redeemer that gets you through. But if you think the redeemer's dead, you don't have hope. And so if you feel hopeless today, where do you get your hope from? Well, you get it from seeing Christ in the scriptures. You you get it from seeing that all of scripture testifies to this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that that doesn't create faith, but it, it fortifies your faith. So, these disciples in verses 22 to 24 recount what the ladies saw uh, that we just looked at in verses 1 through 12, but they're just not sure whether to believe it. The ladies got A, B, and C. They're getting A and B secondhand, but Jesus points them to C, and he calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart to believe what? He doesn't say slow of heart to believe those ladies. Slow of heart to just discount them just because they're ladies, you misogynistic pigs. Why don't you believe them, you jerk? It's not about the ladies' report. Slow of heart to believe what the prophets wrote. You guys read it. You go through it weekly, if not daily. When you gather, you study it, but you're not believing in it. You're not understanding it because if you did, the resurrection wouldn't be a surprise to you. Take a look at verses 26 and 27 where Jesus says, was it not necessary? In other words, according to what the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffer plus enter equals resurrection. Right? He, part of the suffering was death, but if he stays dead, how does he become a glorified Savior, a glorified Redeemer of Israel? Well, through the resurrection. So what he's saying is, if you were reading the prophets, the Old Testament for them, wisely and with hearts full of faith, then they would know that it was necessary for the resurrection to happen. All of it. His death, the things that led up to his death, his resurrection, even his ascension entering into glory, which is about to happen in this, later at the end of this chapter. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now Moses there stands for the law. Okay, so you've got the first five books of the Bible, at least just there in Moses, and then all the prophets. And look, it's a long journey. They weren't going like from here to Casey's, okay? It's a long walk. And don't you wish you could be there? the greatest Bible studies we've ever been a part of would by far pale in comparison to Jesus schooling them in the Old Testament scriptures. He starts from Genesis and goes through all the prophets, all of them. Even the minor prophets, you know, the so-called minor prophets, the small books, we don't read that often. He's like, this one said I'm going to resurrect. This one said I'm going to suffer. This one said I'm coming. This one said I'm going to be glorified. He's showing through all scripture what it says about him. And he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself about his uh, work as the Messiah and the Redeemer. So here's the point. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is fueled by all the scriptures. That's where your faith is bolstered, fortified, fueled. It's in studying and rightly understanding the scriptures, not just nitpicking the verbs and the syntax and the grammar, okay, not just collecting commentaries. It's seeing how the scripture passages testify to Jesus himself. Not everyone would have you believe that, okay? Many people will tell you there are certain passages that talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, but not all of the scriptures testify to Jesus in the Old Testament. Now here it says in all the scriptures, verse 27, right? Whatever translation you're looking at, it probably says something like that. In all the scriptures in verse 27, underline that, highlight that. He takes them to Moses. So have you ever read Leviticus and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with me? Jesus took them to Leviticus and schooled them about how Leviticus is a gospel. All the prophets. Have you ever read Micah and you're like, hmm, what what am I supposed to get here? Did you get Jesus out of it? Because if not, I think we probably read it wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. Moses and all the prophets, he opened to them the scriptures so that they can see how they testify about him. Now, I'm going to press it even further because this next episode, I think that's what Luke is doing. He's like, you know what? Let's, let's press this again. Check this out in this very next episode in verses 36 to 39, uh, 49. We won't cover the last paragraph of Luke 24 today. But here, this episode affirms the same things that we just saw. So we'll move a little quickly. I'll read it first, 36 to 49, and then I'll just point out how it affirms everything we just saw in the previous episode with Cleopas. As they were talking about these things, the disciples are gathering around talking, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, if they think they are seeing a spirit or a ghost, what are they not believing right now? The resurrection, a bodily resurrection, okay? And then verse 38, here's the rebuke again. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Remember, slow of heart to believe, doubts arising in your hearts. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Interesting. Now he's giving them category A. Physical evidence. He's giving it to them. All right, fine. Here you go. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. There's his apologetics, right? He's working from the physical evidence to show them that he is resurrected. Verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were, and while they still disbelieved for joy, And were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Now he's going to further prove his physicality by eating in front of them. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now he goes to category C. Then he said to them, so they get A and B, physical evidence. And of course, he's trying to say, I'm Jesus myself. Forget an angel. You're getting both. But... Apparently, they're still struggling. He goes to see, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember, the ladies were reminded by the angels. Remember what Jesus spoke to you. Now Jesus is doing it himself. Remember what I spoke to you. What did he speak to them? Scripture. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and just in case you were like, well, what about the Psalms? He throws that into, yes, even the Psalms, right? So the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Job's, Ecclesiastes, is covered, I think, uh, representatively by the Psalms, other places called the writings. The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high." So he gives them A, then he gives them B, and then he finishes and tops it off with C. Scripture, what Scripture said, right? So in this episode, again, Jesus shows up while the resurrection is being discussed in verse 36. Again, they still don't get it in verse 37. They think it's a spirit. So then again, he rebukes their doubt in verse 38. Again, remember, doubt is what's rising in their heart. And then he gives them A and B, but verse 41 says they still disbelieved. Right? He gives them his physical evidence, shows them his hands and their feet. Verse 41, they still disbelieved for joy. They're happy about it, but they're still not grasping it by faith. So much for seeing it for yourself. If Jesus showed up himself, then I'd believe. I don't think so. If you spurn the scriptures, even if Jesus shows up himself, you might still disbelieve. You might be really excited. It's a weird phrase, disbelieved for joy. I don't know what that means, but it still says they disbelieved, and it says they yet or still disbelieve. So he's taking, remember the doubt that they were struggling with? It's still there, even after the physical evidence, A, and even after a personal visitation, forget an angel, Jesus Christ himself is with them, be to the nth power, and they still disbelieve. So what do they need, according to Luke? See, the same things that is available to you and me, today, now, 2,000 years later. The mechanism of faith operates on the fuel of scripture, not evidence by itself. Jesus isn't opposed to evidence. It's not wrong to show evidence. He does it right here to these disciples. It just doesn't work by itself. We need something else. So if you're evangelizing someone, if you're raising your kids, the most important thing to fuel faith is not to teach them apologetics frontward and backward and how to memorize all the arguments for an empty tomb. Teach that, but that's not the main thing. If you're walking them through Scripture and showing them Christ in all of Scripture, That's the main thing, and that's how disciples grow. That's how your heart is fueled. I didn't mean to skip this, but I'm going to blame it on the procedure, and I'm struggling to see what I'm doing here. But when when the episode continues with the disciples, that he's walking with them on the road, something happens with their hearts. That's really interesting, because we saw that it's a heart problem, right? You're foolish and slow of heart to believe, and then in the later, in the third episode, he says, why do doubts arise in your heart? So f- the lack of faith, struggling with faith is, is a heart problem. It's also a mind problem because he opens to them. He opens their mind to scriptures. We get that. But as he, he finishes rebuking them, 
Uh, and then he walks them through all these scriptures. In verse 28, they're drawing near finally to the village uh, Emmaus to which they were going. And then Jesus acted like he was going to keep walking, you know, and he's just waiting for them to be like, no, let's keep this Bible study going, man. You know, and so he, look at verse 28, he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He vanished and he vanished from their sight. Now, verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose in the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. Now they believe, right? And appeared to Simon. Then they told that uh, what had happened on the road and how he had known to them, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So they get their own experience to report. They get their own moment of fiery faith now, okay? Slow of heart to believe is now their hearts brimming with faith. And I think that's what they mean when they said in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? So how did their hearts that are slow of heart to believe start burning? I don't think they're, they need like Tums. This is not an antacid situation, Okay. Nor do I think it was just an emotional, like, wasn't your heart burning at the end, that final scene when they finally kissed? It's slow of heart to believe. And now these sluggish, dampened hearts are brimming with faith. Now, how did they get from slow of heart to burning hearts? He walked them through the scriptures and showed them how the scriptures are about him. That did it. That's the key. And I think that's, that's the center of Luke 24. Luke 24, he's, Luke is wrapping up his gospel, and he's saying, how do you, after seeing all this stuff, how do you get to that point where you have an infectious faith that you go and tell others about like you see here? If you're feeling like your faith is sluggish or slow, how do you get to that point where it's fueled and burning? How do you get to this place like Cleopas? Man, your heart is just, something happened there. Scripture. Scripture is how. And so, as a point of application, should we study Scripture more? Yes. Should we investigate it more? Yes. Should we not just rely on the preacher to do it, but find ways to dig into it ourselves to, to fortify your faith? Yes, that's what we're supposed to be doing for ourselves. And anyone for whom you are in charge of shepherding, whether it's your kids or anyone you're, in char- you're, you're supposed to be influencing, whether it's your spouse your neighbor, your friend, each other in the church. We do that by reading through Scripture, but we don't just read through Scripture. We see how Scripture testifies to Christ. So, I mean, you, you can chop apart Scripture and just go, these are the verbs and these are the nouns and just never get to Christ. And I think there's just an emptiness there that is uh, maybe brilliant in its exegesis, but it's not getting us to the point where our hearts are brimming with faith one more point and then then i'll wrap it up you can look at this and go okay jesus surely even though it was a long walk surely jesus couldn't walk them through every single line of old testament scripture 
Like in the beginning, pause. I'm the beginning. I'm the word, blah, blah, blah. God created the earth. Okay, the earth is for me. And I'm like every phrase, probably not. So what does it mean that he went in all the scriptures? I think it at least means he went to all the categories. He went to law. He went to prophets. He went to writings, the Psalms, and showed throughout there in sample texts. He didn't, couldn't show every text, but in sample texts showing them how these texts are pointing to him. And as he was doing that, their hearts were like, oh man, that, that was the fuel they need, okay? Like a starving person finally finding food, all right? Outside of this, outside of this, you're trying to get your faith to grow and it feels like it shrivels and it's because you don't see how scripture testifies to Christ. It's kind of like buying a plant and the tag says, hey dummy, this plant belongs in full sun and you stick it in the shade to shrivel and die. The way to be fueled by your faith is to not just see scripture and not just to study scripture, but to see Christ in scripture and not just in particular parts, three or four places that predict the Messiah, but all over scripture in all the scriptures. So when somebody says there's no way Jesus showed them all the scriptures, he must have only gone to the really, really obvious ones, the suffering servant in Isaiah or something like that, okay? The problem with that the problem with thinking about the only, there's only some places in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus, and there's, there's several of them, but the rest of it is not about Jesus at all. The problem with that is verse 46, right here in verse 46, where Jesus, uh, together with those disciples, uh, opened their minds to understand the scripture, verse 45, and then he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now I ask you, what Old Testament passage could Jesus have possibly turned to to show them that the Old Testament already wrote that Jesus or the Christ would not only suffer and not only die, but rise again, and not just rise again, but rise again specifically on day three? What passage is that? I don't know of any. I've been looking for a while. I don't know of any Old Testament passage that says, hey, a Messiah is coming, and what's going to happen is he's going to die, and then he's going to rise on day three. There are none. So what are our options? Obviously, Jesus is a liar is an option that we should, you're already off the faith boat. <laughs> if he's a liar, we, just, we, should just, we should just wrap this up and, and go home right now. Another option is that Jesus is not saying there's only, there are verses, all verses in Old Testament scripture uh, blatantly, overtly, explicitly point to him, but that they point to him in patterns. Okay, in patterns. I'll give you a couple examples. An obvious pattern that Jesus talked about is uh, the book of Jonah. You remember some have, had asked Jesus for a sign. He's like, I'm not going to give you a sign. You have the book of Jonah. There it is again. I want category A or B, preferably both. And he's like, no, you have C. I'm not giving you A or B. Right? You have Jonah, the Old Testament. And if you don't see me, the truth of me in Jonah, then I don't know what to tell you. Basically what Jesus told them. Now, don't feel too down on yourself if you feel like I've read Jonah many times and I didn't really think about Jesus. I thought about how I run from God sometimes. You know, it's impossible to run from God. God always gets his way. Or 
Uh, sometimes we're racist, and we don't want to share the gospel with certain kinds of neighbors. But God loves all people. Hey, all of the things that I just said are true. But that's not what Jesus wants us to ultimately get from Jonah. Uh, when he says Jonah is the sign of himself. You remember that Jonah was, uh, was running from God's agenda to take the gospel to places outside of Israel. And so the way that he transforms Jonah into the perfect messenger is by getting him thrown off the boat in the middle of a storm, right? And then a fish swallows Jonah, and Jonah's down in the depths of the deep blue sea like we used to sing when I was a little kid. Jonah's basically dead. He's in Hades. And he repents, and the fish regurgitates him onto the shore, He preaches the gospel. It's effective. People change. They repent. Now the text tells us very clearly he was in the whale or the fish or the the beast, whatever it was, for three days. And that's what Jesus explicitly points out. Just Just as Jonah was in the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days. Now, in order to get there, we've got to go, okay, Jonah isn't specifically talking about Jesus, but if we already understand that all of Scripture is about Jesus, then you can go, what are the patterns here that point to it, okay? Patterns, all right? You see the pattern in a couple other places, and I'll just make this really fast. You can look it up later, but you remember when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, okay? Many Christians say that has nothing to do with Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus. Hmm. I don't want to presume to call them foolish or slow of heart to believe, but I feel like that's what Jesus would say. You have all these matching patterns. The son that can only come through promise. The son that came through promise by a miracle birth, that outside of God's miraculous intervention, a birth that couldn't happen. He's the only son. He's the beloved son. The text tells us he's beloved of Abraham. Isaac uh, is a willing participant in the sacrifice, even when he realizes that he's the sacrifice himself. He carries the wood of the, the wood upon which he will be sacrificed on his own back as he hikes it up the, the, the hill himself. Sound familiar? I could go on and on, but the, the, the point here is that the text tells us that Abraham came back down the mountain with Isaac alive on day three. And when you read the author of Hebrews, he tells us uh, Isaac did resurrect figuratively speaking he says right so you're seeing it as a as a figure figuratively pointing to christ one more really quickly and it's where uh elijah is called in to resurrect the dead child of the widow and he prostrates himself identifying with the death of that child face to face right chest to chest on top of that child how many times one two three resurrection so when you start seeing patterns like that what jesus is teaching the disciples is when you're reading the old testament you're supposed to see patterns that point to jesus okay so now we were studying the bible just on this top level and then jesus puts on lenses and you're like whoa really deep now right it's really deep it's not just a message about a prophet running from god it's a message about a redeemer that comes to save people even outside of israel It's not just a message about uh, the faith of a dad challenged by being asked to sacrifice his son. But when God stops it, 
he basically says, no, no, no. You're not going to be the one to provide a sacrifice for this world. I'm going to be the one to provide a sacrifice for this world. I just wanted you to see in picture form what that's like. And I'm, I'm telling you, this is how we're supposed to study scripture. I'm convinced. I wasn't always convinced. Because sometimes it feels like we're jamming Jesus into a place where he doesn't belong. Except for the fact that a place like Luke 24 tells us we're not jamming Jesus into the text. The text is about Jesus and the author is telling us to, to see it that way. Okay, The author is telling us you're supposed to see it that way. And we're used to reading like this. Any of you who've read uh, novels and texts before, you can see as you're reading a story that the author is telling you something uh, without telling you explicitly. They're using characters and stories to weave together something so that when you put the book down, you go, okay, I think the moral of the story is this. And when we do that with scripture, we're going, the moral of the story is not just be courageous, don't run away from God. If he asks you to sacrifice, be willing. Those are true, but the point, the center of it is how scripture testifies to Jesus Christ. And the reason why I'm telling you that is not to be nerdy, okay? The reason why I'm telling you that is because that is the prescription for flimsy faith. That's the prescription. And we waste time sitting around waiting for God to give us something miraculous, give us some miraculous dream, some miraculous intervention, some crazy encounter. Uh, Maybe you see an angel or something, you know? Reveal yourself to me in some spectacular way. And God's going, I did. I gave you a spectacular book full of spectacular things if you would read it and see it with minds that are open and hearts that are faithful. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a result of our time here that we would be encouraged to study your word uh, with enthusiasm and with vigor. Even now as we close in the song, Lord, we pray that you would fortify our faith, build us up so that we can survive the flaming arrows of doubt that the enemy sure is to continue to uh, send our way. And we pray that as we minister to others that we would bolster their faith by pointing them to your word, uh, getting them into scripture, and allowing scripture to show us again and again uh, what you testify in scripture about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's for your glory and to your name that we sing now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in a song.